This podcast is being recorded in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the land of the Sandia Pueblo, Laguna Pueblo, Acoma Pueblo, and Isleta Pueblo. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us at The Circle today. Today, we are sitting down with our good friend, Mark Charles. Mark is a speaker, author, traveler, and all-around troublemaker in a good way. Mark is a co-author of the book, Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. He co-authored this book with his friend, Sung Chung Ra. We hope you enjoy our conversation today as Mark sits down with us to talk about his 2002 book tour, as well as sharing his thoughts on treaties, specifically those treaties made between the U.S. government and Native American people. I always introduce myself as Mark Charles. And my wife likes to tell the story of a friend from college and they were talking and someone said, do you know what Mark Charles's last name is? And because uh, I guess they thought that was my first name, Mark Charles. Well, thank you very much. So for those of you who I haven't met yet, Yate, Mark Charles, Yanishia, Sinbuke Dene Anishla, Dotohiglini Bashishchin, Sinbuke Dene Dashiche, Dotohichini Dashinella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineals of people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and so that's why I say Sinbuke Dene. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people, uh, the Klompen. So my second clan, my father's mother is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Sinbuke Dene'a. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni. That's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I'm here in Washington, D.C. today. I moved here with my family from the Navajo Nation about seven years ago. And these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. So I want to honor the Piscataway as the hosts of the lands where I live. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state what, how humbling it is to be living on these lands today. So can you tell us a little bit about your summer, Mark, and how many miles you traveled yeah. on your book tour? <laughs> um, maybe share what's the best fast food food you ate. And yeah, <laughs> or yeah, anything that stuck so, out to you on your trip. I'm drinking from my, uh, this is my my bluebird flower mug that Diane Renee bought me and gifted me a few years ago. I still drink from it every day. But yeah, so this summer I um, I took a, a book tour for my book on Southern Truths. I, I had a very light schedule. Uh, I think because of the Omicron variant that hit last winter, a lot of places canceled their events in this in the winter, summer, and spring. And uh, so I had a pretty open schedule, but I really wanted to get out and engage with people. And so I decided to travel across the country. And so I literally, I, I left with my daughter on July 19th, and we went as far north as Minneapolis, Minnesota. We went as far west as San Francisco and San Diego. We went as far south as um, El Paso, Texas. And we had many, many stops in between. We actually drove 10,452 miles total um, over about a six week period, had close to 20 events all around the country and were engaging with audiences about on selling truths. And we called it, I called it um, challenge your paradigm. And what I did in the presentation, so every place I went, I gave about an hour hour and a half presentation on different paradigms that the book will challenge in you as you read through it. So we talked about how it'll challenge the paradigm 
of you cannot discover lands that are already inhabited and what the implications of that are. It will challenge the paradigm of um, uh, that the belief of these are Turtle Island is European promised land. Uh, it will challenge the paradigm of the victors write the history and that's a good thing. Um, challenge the paradigm of trauma and even how we view white people. And most people view white people as either uh, fragile or as racist. And I presented the paradigm of white people are traumatized by the history that they're standing on. And so we went through each of those categories. And then at the end of the presentation, I said, after you've had, you've read the book and you've had your paradigms challenged, you're gonna hear two conversations very differently, national conversations that we're having. So now we're going beyond the content of the book. And uh, I said, the first one we talked about was the dialogue on um, white Christian nationalism. And I went through both the values that the right and conservatives have, on white Christian nationalism and for white Christian nationalism. And then I looked at the ways that the left just as much clings to the value of Christian white Christian nationalism and um, espouses that value as well. And then I, I ended the, the talk by talking for about 15 to 20 minutes about treaties and why the United States of America feels it has the right to break treaties with impunity. And I went through our history with treaties. I went through kind of the, the lens that, that white Americans view treaties under. And I gave very clear examples and kind of helped connect some dots for people of why white people don't, well, first of all, why they think treaties are a native issue, right? So you'll hear, you'll hear people all the time say, well, treaties are a native issue because they define where our reservations are which on one hand is correct, right? It, a treaty says, okay, if you give up your lands here in North Carolina or wherever, Georgia, and you move to Oklahoma, we will establish this reservation. And so the treaty establishes the reservation. And then later the nation breaks the treaty and says, okay, we're gonna move your reservation. We're gonna make it smaller. We're not gonna honor it anymore. And so they, so, and that's all they hear about it. But a treaty has two sides, right? And if you break it, yes, you can diminish the size of a reservation, but technically if you break it, if the treaty is what establishes the reservation, it also establishes white people's jurisdiction over the lands the natives vacated. So if you break the treaty, guess what happened? This may lose access to the reservation, but then white people also lose jurisdiction over the lands that they now inhabit. And so treaties are very much affecting not just natives, but white Americans, all Americans. But that's not how our country talks about treaties or how they understand it. And so um, again, most people think treaties are a native issue and they don't see how treaties are actually inherent to white European jurisdiction over these lands as well. For someone that's very new to the conversation and just wondering how this, how treaties even affects them or how they should learn. Um, my question, I guess, for you would be, um, what's a, what's a working definition that you've um, kind of been wrestling with in regards to treaty? 
Yeah, I, I think this, those are some very good questions. I, I think one of the things, if you're going to look at a working definition of treaties, you can start by what it says in the dictionary. And I'll just, I'll just tell you what it says. A, a formal concluded and ratified agreement between two countries. That's what a treaty is. It, it's an agreement that not just two leaders decided on, but gets ratified by the whatever the leadership establishment, parliament or the court or whatever else that country has, Congress, um, of these are agreements between these two countries that we're gonna use moving forward. And so that's kind of, you might even wanna say a secular definition of treaty. I think many natives would approach the idea of treaty with much more of a sacred or because it's talking about land and it's talking about commitments and agreements of people where we that would also become a sacred agreement for many of our native peoples that we would honor and would feel obligated to honor because of our beliefs. Um, that's not included in, in the dictionary's definition of it. And I think that's one of the challenges, um, even the differences that the way uh, these agreements are understood. I don't know how to go into this. I mean, I can go into my full, <laughs> the full thing I was, I've been talking about for a long time. So the, the challenge with the United States and the interesting thing about the United States is it likes to claim heretically that it's a Christian nation and it likes to claim that its foundations were inspired by God, right? And if you ever read the teachings of Jesus, you know that that was never the goal, right? I, I, one of my biggest events during the book tour was in Orange City, Iowa, which is in very conservative, right-leaning Trump land. Um, not too far, it was right near Northwestern College, not too far from Dort College. I've spoken in the area before, both at Dort and at, and at Northwestern about the doctrine of discovery. In fact, I was at Dort. Dort is where Donald Trump made his quote where he said he could stand in New York City on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and not lose a, thing, a single supporter. That was at Dort College, he said that. Um, I was on that same stage literally like three months earlier, talking about the doctrine of discovery, talking to probably many of the same people. So that's where that where that event was taking place was in this very very conservative of not just MAGA people, but just your mainstream conservative Republicans, even people who might be disturbed by what MAGA is doing, but they're still diehard Republicans. And I said to that audience, I said. If you, one of the things your party is fighting for, whether you're MAGA or whether you're just a mainstream Republican, is you're fighting for your religious liberties. And you've been told that you're persecuted as, as a demographic of people and you're fighting for your religious liberties. And I said to them, I said, if you feel like your job as a, as a faithful Christian is to fight for your religious liberty, you should probably just leave the faith because clearly you've never heard what Jesus talks about with religious liberty, where he promised you that you would be persecuted for following him. He promised you that people would hate you. He promised you that this was not gonna be an easy road. I said, if you're fighting for your religious liberties, you have to understand your opponent is not the Democrats. 
your opponent is Christ, right? And so let's just get that straight, who you're fighting against, if you're fighting for your own religious liberties. When we talk about treaties, right, and it, it's more the Republican side and the right-leaning side that says, well, we're a Christian nation and our foundations were inspired by God. And if you read the Constitution, Article 6, Clause 2, I think, of the Constitution, um, it's the Supremacy Clause. And it says that uh, the Constitution and the treaties are the supreme law of the land. So in other words, if there's ever a disagreement, if there's ever a disagreement between forms or parts of the government, if there's a disagreement between the legislator and the, the, the White House, the executive branch, the treaties are the supreme law of the land, right? This is, and this is what natives will point to frequently. What's fascinating is if you go back, and we'll just go back two years ago to the McGirt ruling. So in the McGirt case, which was um, to understand the McGirt case, you have to understand Indian law. So American Indian law states that if a Native American commits a crime against another Native American on a reservation, the jurisdiction for that crime falls to the federal courts. And so um, McGirt, a Native man, committed a crime in Tulsa, Oklahoma against another Native person. And he was tried and found guilty by the state courts of Oklahoma. And he appealed, not because he thought he was innocent, but he said, you tried me in the wrong court. Based on treaty, Oklahoma is reservation land, and therefore I should have been tried in federal court. The state of Oklahoma responded and said, we've never treated Oklahoma. Since our founding as a state, we've never treated Tulsa as reservation land. And the courts have since agreed with us, with us it's not reservation land. Therefore, we have every right to try you in state court. And so he, he, he was fighting that, he was appealing to the ruling, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and it was in 2020 that the McGirt ruling came out and everyone in Indian country was kind of on edge because it was seen as uh, a fight for treaty rights and was the, 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 the court gonna honor the treaties because um, the treaties were very clear that Oklahoma was a part of, of a reservation. And it was um, Neil Gorsuch, who was a Trump nominee. Um, I almost said appointee, but we'll call it a nominee. He was the one who wrote the opinion. And most people were surprised because he actually, they actually ruled in favor of McGirt. Um, and if uh, this was seen as a huge win throughout Indian country. Um, I'll, I'll actually read for you part of the ruling. Um, basically what it said is it said that for judicial purposes, the courts don't have the rights to disestablish a reservation and the state doesn't have a right for to disestablish a reservation or to break a treaty. And therefore, for judicial purposes, all of Eastern Oklahoma is still a reservation. And therefore, not only McGirt, but hundreds, even thousands of other um, people had to be retried in the state court. Now, again, the initial response, what came out in the summary of the opinion was that they ruled in favor of McGirt and this was a win for Indian country. And it absolutely was, but I don't trust the Supreme Court because I've read their opinions and they're very white supremacists. 
And so I, I took, I was actually campaigning for president that day. I was running for off for the office of president as an independent candidate. And I took the day off from campaigning that day and I read the entire opinion. And sure enough, uh, Neil Gorsuch did put some Easter eggs in the ruling to white supremacy. And at one point, this is what he said. He said to determine, I'll, 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 I'll read this for you. To determine whether a tribe continues to hold a reservation, there's only one place we may look, the acts of Congress. This court long ago held that the legislature wields significant constitutional authority when it comes to tribal relations, possessing even the authority to breach its own promises and treaties. It went on to state that only Congress can divest a reservation of its land and diminish its boundaries. So it's no matter how many other promises to a tribe the federal government has already made, has already broken, if Congress wishes to break the promise of a reservation, it must say so. So what the Supreme Court was saying was, you're barking up the wrong tree. The states don't have the rights to break treaties. The courts don't have the rights to break treaties. If you wanna break a treaty, you have to go to Congress. Only Congress can break a treaty. Now, what's fascinating about that is Section 6, Clause 2 of the Constitution says treaties are the supreme law of the land. It says the treaties and the Constitution are the supreme law of the land. And now the Supreme Court is ruling that Congress has the right to break treaties. It can't, it didn't say it can amend them, it said it can break them. It has the power to break them. And so what they were basically ruling is that Congress is accountable to nobody. It's not bound by the treaties. And apparently then it's not even bound by the constitution because if the supremacy clause states both of those things are the supreme law of the land and the court's ruling that Congress can break the treaties whenever they want, they're basically saying, yeah, Congress, they're not bound by these things. And so again, this, this is very important for people to understand because this is why, right? The, the United States of America has over 400 treaties with native nations all across the country. Every single one of those treaties has been broken. And so this is why it's not surprising, right? If you've watched my TEDx talk where I, and I read the book on Selling Truths, right? Where we talked about how in 2020, when the issue of native sovereignty over land comes up, right? It's fascinating that the Supreme Court doesn't reference treaties when talking about land titles. It references the doctrine of discovery. Why? Well, because we broke all those treaties. We want to diminish the reservations, but we don't want to give the land back that the country took. And so this is why, through since 2005, we're basing land titles on a radical doctrine coming out of the church. Because we have no treaties left. The trees are all broken. And so the only claim that this country can make to why it has the right to the land it possesses is the claim that says natives aren't human. And therefore, we can take their lands. What's, I, what's all kind of fascinating about this, and I, I actually use this in my presentation to state this is, not only does this demonstrate that 
our country feels it can break, break its treaties with impunity and the thinking behind that. But it even helps prove that our nation isn't even a Christian nation, which is what people like to claim. And to, to, to demonstrate that, I remind people about the Gibeonites. So if you remember the Gibeonites, right? They were, they were one of the nations in Canaan when the Israelites went to take possession of their land. They saw Israel going through and destroying all these other nations. And they were very afraid. They're also very shrewd. They dressed up an envoy in shaggy clothes and made them smell and look bad. And they gave them old camels. Made it look like they had traveled across the wilderness to come talk to Joshua. And they came to Joshua and said, we've traveled a long way. And we've heard about what you're doing. And we're afraid of you. Please sign this treaty with us and spare our lives. Now, Joshua was probably flattered that his reputation had traveled so far. And he was probably kind of flattered that his fear was following his name. And so without checking their story or consulting God, he signed a treaty with them. A few, literally a few verses later, he learned that the Gibeonites were not from far away. They were from right around the corner. In fact, they were one of the next nations to be destroyed by Israel. And so now we had a question, what does he do? Does he obey God and destroy everything that breathes in Canaan? Or does he honor the treaties and let the Gibeonites live? And in the book of Joshua, Joshua 9, verse 19, it says, The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. So they decided to honor the treaties. Fascinating because a few books later in the Old Testament account, when David was king of Israel, Israel came under famine. They had three years of famine. And David, like any Jewish leader when his people were not prospering went to god and say what do we do wrong why are you punishing us why do we have famine and god said because your predecessor king saul broke the treaty with the gibeonites and he attacked them and i'm going to hold you accountable until you make that right and so god held israel to the treaty they signed with the gibeonites and david had to go back and make things right with the gibeonites and I said, this, this is the proof we need that our nation is clearly not a Christian nation. Not that it should be, but it's not, no matter what the right or the left likes to claim. Right? Because we claim that our foundations were inspired by God. We claim we're a Christian nation. But we say that primarily to justify our incredible violence and unjust history against Black people and against Native peoples. We don't really believe that. And the proof that we don't believe that comes from the fact that we have no value for treaties. We don't value treaties. We don't honor treaties. We don't keep treaties. Is there, is there a place that maybe you could share with uh, the folks that are watching a New Testament um, example of keep your word. <laughs> and this is, you are to, you know, you are to do this and this is what's expected of the people of God or the followers and disciples of Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus says it very clearly, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, right? He's like, don't even don't even make promises or swear. I think he says that because he knows we're, we're not going to keep them. Um, you know, he's like, just learn how to have a value for your word. Um, and I, I think whenever I think about this, there, there's a, a native a native man who is my art teacher who I think modeled and taught that very, very well. His name is Elmer Yazi. And Donnie and Renee both know him as well. And one of the things that I love about Elmer is, you know, in, in American society, right, it's very common to say you're passing someone on the street or you're passing someone in the in the hallway at work. And, hey, hey, hi, how you doing? Right. You say that all the time. We ask that question all the time. How you doing? And we keep walking. And Elmer has told me numerous times he doesn't like that question and he doesn't ask that question, he doesn't answer that question. Because when Americans ask that question, they don't really want an answer, right? They ask it in, in, when you're passing. He said, that's not a question you ask when you're walking two different directions on the street. That's a question you ask when you're sitting down with a cup of coffee and you've both cleared your schedules to have a real conversation. And, and I think that's, that gives an understanding of even the understanding of let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? When we take our words seriously. Um, but I, I like being reminded by Elmer <laughs> that, no, if you're going to ask that question, you have to be in a posture of being able to listen for an answer and be able to be in a space of, of hearing an answer that may go longer than 30 seconds or longer than five seconds which is all you're looking for when you're passing someone on the street and you ask that question. My quick question, Mark, is like, when you share these things, I can tell, and you've shared in other places where it's hard for, especially uh, non-Indigenous and for white people to hear these things because they kind of go on the mythology of American history and read only what they think is right or, you know, from a one perspective. But what's kind of one of the main questions you get from audiences? Well, I think the, the question it leads to is because even the way I framed it in the lectures I've been giving across the country, which is our nation doesn't believe it's a Christian nation. And the proof for that is we have no values for treaties. Now, again, people will say, well, I have a value for treaties. I would say, well, unless you're actively lobbying your country to keep the promises it's made on your behalf, then don't say you have a value for treaties, right? <laughs> if you don't know what treaties were signed and broken for the house you're living in and the city you're you're a, you're a citizen of, don't say you have a value for treaties if you're not a, even aware of what treaties were signed and broken so that you could live where you live or work where you work or worship where you worship. Um, but the other problem is, is this is where it's so easy to say, well, the solution then is we have to become a Christian nation and we have to have a sacred understanding and we have to make our nation Christian and we have to behave more Christian as a nation. And I quickly remind people, no, that, that's not the solution. That's what created this whole doctrine of discovery in the first place. That's not the solution. The solution is as a country right now, we are just getting to the point where it's almost becoming tolerable 
for a few people to publicly state Black Lives Matter or Native Lives Matter. We, we don't accept it yet, but we're beginning to tolerate a few people beginning to say these things in public as a country. And it's important that we do this. It's important that we are able to advocate for the humanity of the people who are marginalized. But the deeper problem is, is not just the diminishing of one group of people's humanity, people of color or other marginalized people, but the, the other part of the problem, which I would argue is actually the bigger part of the problem, is the, the lie that there's another group of people that are superior. And so just as we're beginning to be able to tolerate people saying Black Lives Matter, Native Lives Matter, LGBTQ Lives Matter, right? We should also begin to be able to state more commonly, more frequently, that white people aren't superior, right? We should just be able to state that. I've been called racist for saying that. There's, Think about that. We live in a nation where you're racist if you state white people aren't superior. Because that's the lie that's behind so much of all the other things that we're dealing with as a country. Is we have a lie, a belief that white people are superior. And that's just as dehumanizing as saying other people are inferior. And so we have to begin to state this more publicly, acknowledge this more freely. And then we have to get more comfortable about decentering white people, right? And just, yeah, that's, that's not the goal. And that's where it becomes tricky, right? So when we talk about things, like one of the phrases that gets used a lot in, around, around the country is the term um, uh, white privilege. I don't like to use the term white privilege. White privilege makes it sound like white people have been giving a blessing that they have to become more generous with. And that's nowhere near the reality of it, right? The reason white, the white demographic has things that the rest of the demographics don't is not because they've been blessed, it's because it's the fruits of their oppression. Right. It, it's the fruits. And this is like even this is a challenge with the whole globe mourning the passing of the queen last week or this week. Right. The crown, she, the jewels on her crown, the, 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 the empire that she oversaw was a colonial empire that oppressed millions of people. Yes, I'm sure she was a nice old lady. I have no doubt about that. But she represented an empire. That was absolutely cruel. And we have to begin to be able to acknowledge that white people are not superior. And we just have to be, do a better job at being human, at acknowledging our shared humanity with the rest of the globe. And this is where we run into problems. Because while we may state that, the United States, we're like 120th of the world's population. We consume a quarter of the world's resources. 
If every nation consumed like the average American, our renewable resources would be depleted globally by April of every year. The lifestyle, the American lifestyle is not sustainable. And we have to radically change the way we live and the way we consume so that we can just be better global citizens. Yeah, no, that's great, Mark. Love, love that tagline. Yeah, just, and I think that's, and if you read the First Nations version, that's Terry Wildman uses that phrase a lot to become a true, a true human being, uh, to work together and to live as better global citizens. So thanks. Thanks, Mark, for so many words. And I think Renee's going to close us off with some of the comments. It's mostly an agreement, just uh, mm -hmm. analysis is on target. Um, uh, Sherry was also commenting about how she noticed the Queen Elizabeth's funeral, um, where she her title was Defender of the Faith. And then her orb was like a globe with a cross on the top. And that's very scary, even that it was just celebrated out, just out in the yeah. open. And she thought of the British Empire and the Doctrine of Discovery. The, a comment that, you know, just manifest destiny um, in perpetuity, that it's that it's still living and breathing many forms and yeah many different forms so true um and then the question of just like does lament need to come before solution seeking lament i would argue and this is what we state in our book lament is absolutely the space where the church enters into this conversation mm -hmm. right yeah we we and if you read the book that i i co-authored um on selling truths one of the uh one of the points that we make is in its current state in its current state and and this is where you know like one i didn't have time to do it today but both it's not just when we talk about christian nationalism it's not just the right that believes in christian nationalism i there's a quote i'll just read it for you this is by george or joe biden after the uh terrorist attack in Afghanistan two, two years ago in 2021, or a year and a half ago. And after that terrorist attack where numerous American lives were lost, he not only threatened our enemies that we will never forgive you, we're never gonna forget this, we will use every means necessary to hunt you down and kill you. But at the end of his statement, he said, those who have served throughout the ages have drawn inspiration from the book of Isaiah when the Lord says, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And the American military has been answering for a long time, here am I, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, send me. White Christian nationalism is a bipartisan value. It's celebrated by both the left and the right. Both sides, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if we don't learn how to acknowledge that and how to make a bipartisan or a foundational level critique, and deal with these things at a foundation level, we're never going to solve these problems. Go find uh, yeah. Mark's uh, book. Uh, you can also find more of his work, his blog, and more talking on wirelesshogan.com. I believe Mark's also a YouTuber, a uh, YouTube he star. Is. Did you get your plaque yet? Do you have one of those cool <laughs> plaques? We'll no, I haven't got that yet. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll send you one. We'll make it out of uh, duct tape. Indian Chrome. <laughs> yeah, when you mentioned um, Elmer Yazi, yeah, I remember reading on one of his posts that he has one of those outdoor coffee. What are they called? Yeah. Like they're percolator. Percolate. Well, no, the one you put over the open fire. 
like they're blue and white. I don't know what they're called. Yeah, anyway, like, they're an, like an the enamel, yeah, yeah, but he said he never washes it. He'll just make coffee in it over and over again. So I don't know if that's healthy, <laughs> oh, but that's that's what he does. Yeah, <laughs> he says it tastes better, so I, I got to try it. Again, Mark's book can be found where we find all our stuff on Amazon. Have a great day and try to be a good relative and be a good relative by buying Mark's book for yourself or for a friend. And we'll see you later.